You're listening to Talking Smart. The official podcast of the International Association of Sheet Metal, Gear, Rail, and Transportation Workers. This is Paul Pimentel, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Ben Navy. In the control room, Michael Blaine. Welcome to the 10th episode of Talking Smart. Each month we bring you news, guests, and discussions of interest to smart members and working families across the United States and Canada. This is our first episode since the November 3rd elections and the holidays. It's also our first episode of 2021. A lot has happened during that time, to say the least. It's been a historic time and a very unprecedented time, not always for good reason. Since the founding of the United States, we have always had a peaceful transfer of power that has always been orderly. That doesn't seem to have happened this particular time around. And at the same time, we still have a pandemic that's been raging across the country. Today, we sit down with two of SMART's national legislative leaders, Steve Dodd and Greg Hines, and we talk about the insurrection on our Capitol and what to expect after the January 20th inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. We also talk about the significance of the Georgia Senate race and the Democrats achieving control of the U.S. Senate, SMART's legislative priorities in 2021, details about our election mobilization efforts, and what the Biden-Harris administration is likely to do to help working families and to make union organizing easier. Brother Dodd is SMART's Director of Governmental Affairs and was a driving force in the union's 2020 election mobilization. Steve began his sheet metal apprenticeship in 1984 at Sheet Metal Workers Local 172 in New York City, which then later merged with Local 137, which it is today. He became a journeyman in just three years worked at the same shop for 13 years and was a shop steward for eight. For seven years, he was secretary treasurer of the Sheet Metal Metropolitan Association, which consists of local unions from across the Northeastern United States, from Maine all the way down to Washington, D.C. Every person that was nominated for a position or will be in the future, the conversation that's had with them before they even get nominated is, you know, unions will be a very integral part of my administration. And the, the president-elect says that and does that for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that he knows that we are the pathway to the middle class to regain what should be. We also spoke with Greg Hines, Smart TD's National Legislative Director. Brother Hines is a fifth-generation railroader born in Winslow, Arizona, who hired out with Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway in Los Angeles, California in 1995. He transferred to Phoenix, Arizona in 1997, was elected Arizona Assistant State Legislative Director in 2004, elevated to Arizona State Legislative Director in 2009, and was elected National Legislative Director at the second Smart TD Convention in August 2019. He helps to lead Smart TD's efforts on Capitol Hill, and he has vast experience on advocating for all Smart TD members on both the legislative and on the regulatory side. It's a dangerous time, and there's not nearly enough uh, security at Amtrak or any of our passenger rail stations. And one of the things that we're really working hard on right now is to be able to get uh, the TSA involved with passenger rail and for them to have access to the don't fly list. And Uh anybody who's on a don't fly list should not be allowed to ride passenger rail either. In addition, listen for the open mic segment with General President Joseph Sellers at the end of this episode. He will be responding to questions from smart members that have been asked about the attack on our nation's capital and on the democratic process. We will overcome the current state of disunity, but we must bring down the temperature and the aggression. It will take listening an understanding of each other, and mutual respect for each other. Steve and Greg, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Hi, nice to be here. So I want to talk a little bit about the results of the November election. 
as well as recent Georgia Senate runoffs. Uh, we're also going to be talking about smart state and federal legislative priorities, both at state and federal level, as well as prospects for labor law reform under the new incoming Biden administration, and a lot more. But of course, there's the elephant in the room. First, we kind of want to touch upon what's been happening over the past week. It's been a crazy, unprecedented, and historic time in our nation's history, a violent and appalling attack on our democracy, one which is, let's be honest, is going to have reverberate for a number of years. You've been looking at a week since these domestic terrorists stormed the Capitol at the urging of the current president, and they sought to interfere with the peaceful transition of power through a duly elected president. What do you make of all this? What does it mean for smart members and working families across the country? Well, I'd, I'd just like to say for one thing, one of the best things for me about working in Washington, D.C. is being able to walk around these historic buildings, walk in the Capitol, work in the Capitol. And it's it's almost daily where I either am walking by the Capitol or, or going in the Capitol and seeing what happened to it was so heartbreaking. You know, I, I can't imagine wanting to do harm to these buildings at all. I, I mean, as an American, it breaks my heart that any other American would want to do physical damage to these buildings or to the people who work there. So I, I was very hurt and then came anger. And I'm really mad because there's been so much lies. The lies have been going on and, and, and they're not being called out for so long. And there's so many people that believe this stuff and they actually think they're patriots. I mean, it's a huge divide in, in our country. And we have to come together and we, we have to be honest with ourselves about what really just happened. And let me add this. You know, what I say all the time is what you do today affects you five years from now. What is happening here has been started from day one of the current president's presidency. He has created and wanted to create this mayhem from day one of him being in there and wants to make it acceptable behavior that they act like this that they don't follow the rules, that there are no boundaries they won't cross. So for me, this was only something that you could have only seen coming, just didn't know when. The unfortunate scenario that we have before us today is that it'll take a long time for us to get over this, just like it did in the last incident that happened like this. And I do apologize, but I have to take this. Eric. How just hard. so just so people know that that was a phone call that just came in from the incoming Biden administration. Yeah, those of you who don't know, we've been heavily involved in the transition, uh, both sheet metal and transportation division. And uh, this is what happens when you elect pro-labor candidates, right, to leadership positions. Yeah. Um, just, just to add to what Steve and Greg both mentioned is one thing that really hit me, and you hit upon it, Greg is the U.S. Capitol is a symbol of American democracy to a lot of people around the world. If you look at the statements that came out from our allies, when I talk about our allies, I'm not talking about the current president's allies in Russia and North Korea and places like that. I'm talking about our traditional allies, Germany, France, England, Canada, our South American allies, Japan. Every single one of them mentioned that the U.S. Capitol has always stood as the birthplace of modern day democracy. This is where it all started. This is like the symbol, rock solid symbol that has always stood for democracy. Started here, expanded around the world. And they looked at that and they were sickened and disgusted. And the fact that there were Americans who cheered it on or who participated in that is really sad. It makes me sad, not just angry, but sad. Let's also think about the fact that George Washington set the cornerstone of the Capitol. This goes all the way back. This is who we are and how people can want to deface it and urinate and feces in the Capitol. I mean, it's just disgusting. I, I never dreamed that I would see things like this in America. It's really sad. You know, when all of that started occurring, was upstairs uh, with my son watching uh, everything unfold on CNN. And, you know, my son looked at me and he just could not process the fact that, you know, you learn about the bedrock of our democracy, Washington, D.C., that's where it all happens. That's the lead location of the free world. And to see the people 
whom are who are supposed to be represented by that democracy just go and disrespect all of the institutions that are represented by everything in, in the Capitol. It's it was just it was very hard to explain to my son how people who you would think are, you know, they've been on the planet for decades, yet they still revert to this, I don't know, animalistic uh, intent. And the irony, there, there's there's just so much irony in it, you, you know. <laughs> the current administration, they had this whole idea that they were going to drain some sort of swamp. And they ended up turning the institutions of our nation into their litter box or their pigsty. And the irony that they have a rally where they're chanting, stop the steal, while they're trying to steal the election. Yes, just a, a dumbfounding and uh, just sort of an amazing, unbelievable uh, scene. So, Greg, um, I wanted to, as one of the reverberations that have occurred as a result of the attack on the Capitol, uh, we've been dealing a little bit on the transportation division side about uh, security issues um, with Biden's uh, you know, transition coming up next week. We've been expressing uh, pretty loudly our, our concerns uh, about passenger rail safety. You kind of go into those efforts right now? Well, what a lot of people might not realize, there are a lot of these uh, insurgents came to Washington, D.C. on Amtrak. They were belligerent on Amtrak trains. They refused to wear masks. They had their, their signs and their paraphernalia. They were screaming and yelling at other passengers that they were belligerent to our conductors. Um, and when they would be asked to put their mask on, it, it would get really ugly. They were able to get one of these people off the train. When they searched him, they found out he had a machete in his back. So it's a dangerous time. And there's not nearly enough uh, security at Amtrak or any of our passenger rail stations. And one of the things that we're really working hard on right now is to be able to get uh, the TSA involved with passenger rail and for them to have access to the don't fly list. And uh -huh. anybody who's on a don't fly list should not be allowed to ride passenger rail either. Uh, not, not at all. I mean, uh, you figure that if they have the intent to uh, you know, cause mayhem on in an airplane, they would uh, you know, have the same uh, intent to uh, you know, do something on, on a train. So, you know, talking about that, I mean, there are like big differences. I mean, there's a really huge gap as far as passenger rail safety goes uh, when compared with going on a domestic flight. Can you kind of go into that a little bit? Well, Amtrak has been reluctant to, to do that, to beef up the security like airlines, because they think that it makes people less likely to travel using Amtrak, because a lot of people use Amtrak because it doesn't have all those safety measures that you have mm -hmm. at the airport. But we're at a point in our country now where, where we just can't. Yeah, We just can't. We, ha we have to keep the passengers and, and the, the people who work on the train safe. That's not just our members. That's the onboard services, uh, everyone, the red caps. Everybody's getting abused by these people because they think that they're in the right. They think they're the, the patriots. So on the same day that we had uh, all of that uh, kind of insanity going on on the Capitol uh, at, 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 in Congress, it kind of got buried. But uh, in, in Georgia, we had you know, big wins with uh, two candidates. We had uh, the Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff. They won uh, control of the Senate in Georgia. And uh, so now the Democrats are going to be in control uh, at least for the next uh, two years, uh, kind of coinciding with Biden getting into uh, office. And the election was historic because uh, it was the first time a black uh, candidate had been elected to the Senate in a uh, former Confederate state. Uh, what does the victories of Ossoff and Warnock uh, mean for our issues, both you know on the TD side and what do you see uh, happening in the next two years? Well, let's let's first talk about our efforts in helping that happen. Mm -hmm. uh, we came together, both both sides of the organization, building trades and transportation, and we worked lockstep together to ensure these victories. And we also had participation from other uh, state boards around the country, uh, um, other locals around the country with, with financing. It's the first time that we did a television ad buy and we did that in Macon and Savannah areas because uh, we got the most bang for our buck there because the Atlanta market was so saturated. Mm -hmm. But we, we did 
we had a, we put together a really good plan of mailing and emailing and phone banking and text messaging and, and digital. And all of it was, was coordinated together. And, and Ben and, and Paul, you were very much a part of this as well as Dean Mitchell and, and Steve and I, um, I know Steve will speak for himself, but we're both elated with, with uh, the success we had just in winning those elections. Steve, you wanna add? Oh, absolutely. So uh, first of all, you know, thank you to Paul and Ben and everybody. Um, this was incredibly successful for a number of different reasons, uh, not the least of which, now what does this mean for us? We control not only the Senate, but we control the agenda. So when you have Mitch McConnell, who was an obstructionist since the day he was in there, as far as what he would and would not let on the floor, he doesn't have that control anymore. And we also will have all of the chairmanships of the committees that we need to get the things passed. So by every measure of our jobs, we will be able to do things. It's nothing's going to be handed to us, but to do things in the matter that they should be able to get accomplished because we have the control of these things. Now, listen, let's make no mistake. We can't rest a day because as Greg alluded to, it's a 50-50 thing, right? So what that means is, first of all, we can't afford for one thing to happen to one senator, <laughs> number one. But number two, in two years, which is very soon, one of those seats in Georgia is already going to be up. And that's Warnock seat, but he, he did very well. He won by about 60,000 votes. But there's 13 seats in total that are up in, in the D side. There's 20 in the R side. We have to fight right now to make sure that we're doing everything we can to get them back in those seats. Uh, maybe gain a couple because of what could potentially happen. But uh, uh, you can't say enough about how big a win that was. And I don't know if people remember, I might've said this on one of the podcasts before, but you know, my sweet spot would have been if Kamala Harris was the deciding vote and that's what turned out to be. So uh, I tell you what, I am, I am very excited. And you know, that morning when I woke up and we saw the results come across that we did take both of those seats, you couldn't wipe the smile off my face in the morning, but then the unfortunate thing happened in the afternoon, but it was still okay because we knew where we were going. And then another important point to make is by the Democrats taking control of the Senate, it completely changes the landscape as far as getting uh, Biden's nominations confirmed. They could have done a lot of damage holding up pe good people that were, that were gonna in line to do good things for us but that's not going to happen now. And, and the word is that uh, Mayor Pete is going to be confirmed the day after the inauguration. So we'll have a secretary of transportation coming right out of the gate. And we've met with him and, and he's, he's spoken with us several times and he's well, well, well aware of our agenda. Just getting competent people in Department of Labor and Department of Transportation and getting safety oversight at FRA and MTA is going to be so huge just immediately. We haven't had any oversight. We haven't had any um, backup for our safety, and and not we're not we've had trouble even getting our fatalities investigated by the NTSB, and we're working on that. We've got a plan for that, and who, who uh, we're going to recommend for chairman of the NTSB. We've already got the uh, TNI committee reaching out to NTSB to find out how their allocations are, are broken down, how many people they have working in aviation versus how many people they have in rail. I know those numbers, it's over 120 in aviation and there are nine people that work in rail and pipeline, seven of which are rail. So they need, they need to ask for more money and they need to increase the rail side and, and maybe even decrease the aviation side because they investigate every single aviation accident in the country and they're mandated to investigate ours as well. They're just not and saying budget restraints. That's not gonna cut it anymore. And when you have the nickname Amtrak Joe, I think you're gonna have a sympathetic ear to those things. So it's not only that, it's everything. It's, it's from day one. It's from every person that was nominated for a position or will be in the future. The conversation that's had with them before they even get nominated is, you know, unions will be a very integral part of my administration. 
And the, the president-elect says that and does that for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that he knows that we are the pathway to the middle class to regain what should be. Uh, so uh, we can't help but look forward to what we're about to undertake in the next four years. But let's make no mistake, we're not going to get everything we want. All these different international unions, there's going to be no shortage of asks. But I can tell you this, there will be a common ground. We have had many, many conversations with our uh, building trade side, and I'm sure TD did too, that listen, at the end, we're going to come together and agree that this is, this is what we're going to need moving forward. When it's time to put down your tools, take off your hard hat, and tear into some gas station delicacies, join Smart Local 110 Sheet Metal Workers on The Break Time Breakdown, where we'll cover everything from what it's like to work during a pandemic to why we should all be like ducks. Head over to www.smart110.org or search for us wherever you get your podcasts. We started a thing. You should check it out. So, uh, you know, you mentioned before, we had a great mobilization effort out in Georgia. Uh, that actually kind of uh, carried on from uh, what we did uh, earlier for the success that we had getting uh, Biden and Harris uh, elected. Uh, what on both TD and sheet metal side, so we had a pretty good effort as far as getting out the vote. Uh, can you kind of go into how uh, both of our sides of the union, I mean, that basically laid the groundwork for the success that we had later on in Georgia. So could you kind of talk about uh, how successful that was? Well, the Legislative Action Network has been very successful. And on the TD side, we've been using it for a number of years. And this last uh, cycle, we were really concentrating on cleaning up our lists and making sure that we had good contact information for everybody and who's registered to vote, who's not registered to vote. And we could directly uh, go at, at members that we knew weren't registered and to encourage them to register. And we also were able to track who had requested ballots and who had mailed them in. So we could track, some states had better tracking than others, but we could, we could tell who hadn't mailed their ballot in, we could give them a little push. Hey, you wanna get your ballot in? You know, and of course we, we have our endorsed candidates, but it's important that everybody votes. And our voting numbers are much higher than the national average in every state. It's smart members, whether it's uh, building trades or TD, we vote more than the general public. And I think our engagement with our members through the land system has uh, really put us in a place that we've never been before. And it's a good place. And it can also be used for organizing it can be used for any kind of political endeavor, even on a state level, smaller races. There's a lot that can be had with the land system, and we're really starting to get there now. And, and that was a lot of that was with the help of Dean Mitchell. A tremendous, tremendous involvement that he had with this thing, calling people back, uh, actually, you know, walking them through it, you know, hand in glove and making sure that what we did was we took on um, the responsibility of training reps, organizers, and then smart army folks to uh, get them to see how that could be a useful tool as to, you know, like what, what Greg had alluded to, to help them not only in the election cycle, but afterwards for organizing, for doing whatever, because they could see exactly what their membership breakup was. In other words, you know, they knew pretty much who the Ds were, who the Rs were, what issues moved them, uh, and how often they voted in these elections. And all that stuff is important. You're going to learn your membership more uh, when you do that. And I'll tell you, it was a tremendous tool for us, uh, beside the fact that we had the um, link for all of these phone banks. We did them every Monday night, just like we did during the Biden campaign. And that was from six to eight. Uh, we had, I think, a great deal of success with that. And we opened that up to other folks. Uh, and I think they actually ended up really you know, coming to grips with that was a good thing that we did. And um, I'll tell you what, we initially thought that because our accents were a little different than theirs, that we were going to have a, a little bit of a problem with that. But Atlanta and surrounding areas, it's like a melting pot. So we had no issue with that. As a matter of fact, what we found was that people were very engaged in this cycle. I'm now talking about the special. Um, they knew that they had to keep those numbers up. There was over 5 million people that voted in the general. There was probably 4.5 
or 4.2 that voted in the um, special. So that, that was not a big drop off. And of that, we did find out that 140,000 were people that did not vote in the general, but voted in the, uh, in, in the special. And 40,000 of those, 40,000 of those were people that were first time voters. And those were people that for the most part uh, from November 3rd to January 4th, we're gonna turn 18 and be eligible to vote. So that's how engaged Georgia was. And I can tell you this, I've said this before, I don't think it's gonna to be too long before Stacey Abrams announces that she's running for governor. She had done an incredible job of organizing and getting people registered to vote. And that's hats off to her and what she did with her program in Fair Fight. And we were very well, very well involved in that. We almost gave between the two sides of the organization $300,000 uh, in money from the locals, from the state legislative directors and from the international in that effort. One thing I also wanted to make note of is, and uh, Greg touched upon this briefly earlier, uh, our union is using more modes of communication in order to reach out to folks. Uh, we had a, you know, addition to the traditional phone banking, and uh, we had the uh, an, an email. We also had the text messaging and uh, other ways to uh, reach out to these younger voters. So, um, you know, that was a really integral part of the effort. Well, but, uh, the, the digital part, I think you're going to see a lot more action with, with the digital. We, we did uh, three, dig, four digital ads. We did one television ad in Georgia, and then we did three digital ads for members. One was for retirees, one were for Republican-leaning members, and one was for de Democratic-leaning members. And I think you're going you're to see a lot more digital because the, it, it's, I think it's more effective, and in the long run, it's cheaper. You don't have any mailing costs. And you know, doing things electronically will, will save us a lot of money, and and we're moving in that direction, and have have had good results. You know, Ben, to get back to something you said, I, I just want to touch on this. I think it's important to know there are only about three hundred thousand total union members in the state of Georgia. So, what did that mean? That mean that's why all of these different community groups, us included, had to reach out had to reach out to the community to get community involvement. Um, that's how come four point four million people voted. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll take all the credit for it. <laughs> it's a new model moving forward, too, in a lot of these states, right, where you may have lower market share, uh, lower union density across the board. Sure. Whole trades across the way. You know, one thing I heard in talking about that, um, I've heard a lot of people say Georgia is the new Virginia. Meaning <laughs> if you look at the state of Virginia going back to 2002 when Mark Warner was governor, you know, it went from Mark Warner being elected governor to Tim Kaine being elected governor. All of a sudden, it became it went from a purple state. First, it was a surprise to everybody in 2008. Then it became a purple state. And now it's considered a solidly blue state over the course of a decade. So you think, you think that's what we're seeing here in Georgia and Arizona, places like that? Well, I think, I think it's going to go back and forth for a while before it settles in on being a blue state or, or a red state, as far as Arizona and Georgia, both. I think, it, you know, things are trending in the right direction, but it's, it's like a, a stutter step. You know, we have uh, good democratic successes in Georgia this year and in Arizona, we might get some setbacks in the midterms. You know, it's gonna, it's gonna be back and forth, but the needle's moving in the right direction. And I, you know what, I, I'll tell you what I think is going to be very important. I've said this several times for us to make sure we do. We need to communicate with the membership that we represent when things happen. You know, these positive things that are going to be coming out of this administration have to be disseminated to the locals and to the members so that they again be reassured that this is the reason why we chose to back the people that we did whether it's the senator or the incoming president, these are important things that we can help ourselves educate our membership on. This next question is a multi-part question. The Biden-Harris campaign has made a number of pro-labor promises. What do you think they are going to do to make union organizing easier? Well, I, I would say several things, and not, not the least of which is NLRB, you know, address the NLRB and how that's been treated. Uh, as a, a non-entity so far. But not only that, you know, if you think about some of the things we said earlier in this podcast, and we talked about the people that they bring on to go in these positions, 
These are people that are already being told that unions are going to be a very integral part of the administration and his thought process, a mindset from the top, from whether you're the secretary of labor or you're the secretary of energy or interior or any other agency, you know, going in that these things are going to involve unions. Uh, so when it comes to organizing those people, you know, the PRO Act would be a great example of that, but is also about how you get the people in these places that have uh, the right mindset about how to address the middle class and what these agencies are going to do is they're going to push that to make sure that the organizing tools that are there are given to the people that need them. So what do you think smart members can do to help support these kinds of changes and what, what the Biden administration is trying to do to help grow the labor movement? Well, I can tell you, we, we will ask you for the help. And, and mm-hmm. we usually do it through the land system. Like if we have a piece of legislation that, that's going to be coming up for a vote, we'll send messages to, to all of our members to contact their member of Congress. And we make it easy for them. It's just all they have to do is click on it and the, the letter's already written for them and, and it gets sent. That's one thing they can do. They can also talk to their member of Congress or their senators when they're in the district. Go to their office. Talk, talk about how important these issues are. And when they have their constituents coming in, it's actually more effective than Steve and I talking to them in Washington, D.C. When they hear from the people that are actually voting for them that have these concerns, it makes a big, big difference. And, and that's something that we've really done a lot of in the last year or so is uh, membership engagement with members of Congress. And with all these Zoom meetings that we've been having this year, we've been able to have uh, members of Congress on Zooms with the local people, the, the state director or, or, or business manager. And because there's no travel, so I mean, it, it's a good opportunity that, that we've taken advantage of. But you guys haven't asked me about two-person crew. We were right about to get to that too. Yeah, thanks. Um. <laughs> and as far as two-person crew, that uh, became a lot better situation with the winning of the two Senate races. It's possible that the, that the HR2 will go to conference. HR2 has two-person crew in it and our provisions. And we have Amtrak Joe who says he supports two-person crew. That's the legislative thing, making sure two-person crew is included in any infrastructure package that comes. And, and I'm confident that that's going to happen, particularly because of, of taking the Senate. We're also heading it up at the FRA. We've talked to uh, Mayor Pete about it. We've uh, interviewed all the candidates for FRA. The person that we're backing, Amit Bose, he's very well aware of it. So the first step with FRA and two-person crew is to immediately nullify the preemption. The preemption was what the FRA's attempt to negate all the state laws on two-person crew that we had passed. It was heard in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. It's pending a, a decision on that. But aside from that, if FRA takes it out of, off the table right away, that's done. And then to implement our two-person crew rule that was going to be introduced at the end of 2016 before Trump got elected. And as everybody knows, Trump got elected, his FRA administrator threw it in the trash, and here we are. But we're, So there's three things that we're going after. We're going after negating the negative preemption, installing a two-person crew rule at FRA and mandating two-person crew in legislation in the infrastructure bill. And not to mention, I believe that there are uh, still a few states also pursuing uh, individual two-person crew mandates as well. But uh, if if it goes through on the federal level, then it's kind of a mute point. Right. But we're fighting them on every front. And we have a lot of legislative things going on on the state level. We want to keep the railroads plenty busy on the state level so they can't keep all their resources in D.C. fighting me and Steve. So we have a lot of legislation lined up in various states around the country. It's going to be a very busy year. You just mentioned the difference in having somebody who's labor friendly, like Pete Buttigieg versus Elaine Chow, who the previous administration had, who wasn't as friendly to labor. Um, Also happened to also be married to Mitch McConnell. Um, So as a related question, what difference is it going to make having somebody like Marty Walsh, who's not just a strong friend of labor, but he comes out of the labor movement. He was a rank and file laborer in Boston, leading the Department of Labor, 
compared to somebody like Eugene Scalia, who I don't think ever worked a day in, in his life, and uh, who used to run the Trump Department of Labor and was Anthony Scalia's son. Well, let me, first, before Steve answers about Department of Labor, let me tell you, Elaine Chow, as Secretary of Transportation, our office couldn't even get a meeting with her. Mayor Pete called up our president, both Sellers and Ferguson, shortly after he was nominated and had conversations with both of them and, and made sure that we understand that we have an open dialogue to his office. So that's the contrast. They wouldn't even talk to us before. And now we wouldn't they, even acknowledge now, our existence. And now they've opened the door and said, welcome, come in, tell us what's on your mind. How can we help? Mm -hmm. and, and you know what? Having Marty Walsh there, here's what it brings. First of all, the guy's been able in, in uh, Boston to uh, work with the other side of the aisle to make sure that you know everybody that was at the table uh, could say their piece and they came to some kind of a resolution. I mean, if you, if you talk to Bobby Butler, uh, he would tell you that. And you know, that's why he was so successful. Not only you know, did he come from the labor movement, but he was an officer, but then he was also in the state legislature. So you know what, he knows. He knows how to get people together. He knows how to get to a compromise. And when they go see him, when we go see him, when an employer goes to see him, they know who they're going to see. This is Marty Walsh from labor. This is, you know, we know the mindset going in is going to be in the minds of labor and, and union members. So that we can't be more excited about, you know, where he comes from and who he is uh, to take us to the place where we know we should be. And that's a seat at the table, every single day of the week. Sign up for text message alerts and stay on top of news from across our union that affects you, your job, and your family. Just text the word SMART to 21333. Doing so ensures you receive timely information about job banks, new episodes of this podcast, action alerts on critical legislation, member benefit information, Smart Army, and much more. Again, just text the word SMART to 21333. Message and data rates may apply. You know, one one thing that we haven't uh, quite touched upon, um, but it's, you know, it's out there. It's just, you know, with everything that has happened in Washington, D.C., uh, and, uh, you know, all eyes on uh, what's going to happen with the transition, uh, COVID's still out there. COVID's still a problem. A lot of people have believed that uh, OSHA and the Federal Railroad Administration and the Federal Transit Administration and uh, the Department of Transportation have just basically been hands off uh, when it comes to ensuring workplace safety and regulations uh, related to COVID. Uh, what can we expect to change here uh, as uh, Biden and his administration come in? Well, the, I'd say the biggest change will be there will be adults run in the room. There will be adults handling things. I mean, the, the whole approach of the regulatory agencies throughout COVID, particularly with the MTA and FRA, has just been horrible. We asked for help and they said, no, you're on your own. That, that, we're not, we don't do that. And, and we're going to have science will be part of it. Strategies will be part of it. Implementation, you know, getting these vaccines, um, it's going to be huge. And I think once the Biden administration takes charge, they're going to act, they're going to be competent and able to get people vaccinated. I mean, he says hundred million in the first hundred days, that's a big start. And, and, and not only that, I, I got to tell you, you know, on, on a personal note, what we were able to do uh, with the uh, Biden administration is we actually had uh, smart, had a meeting with Dr. David Michael on the co who is on the COVID-19 task force for the transition team. And we explained to him who we are, what we do. And our big thing is, you know, when you talk about opening up schools again, opening up buildings again, having places and where people gather, we're talking about indoor air quality as a major, major part of the reason why COVID-19 has spread the way it has. And we brought in the experts from NIMI, uh, you know, Chris Rook and um, David Burnett who we submitted his name to be uh, in the Biden administration at some level, maybe in the Department of Labor. He was on the transition review team. So uh, agency review teams. And, I, and I'm, I'm just excited about 
them listening to us and knowing that we're a resource. We should be used as that resource to help them navigate through what it is they're being confronted with because they don't know subject matter like we do. And that can be said about everything that goes on that has anything to do with COVID-19. So uh, that's why I'm excited about you know, where we're going to be in this new administration, because every union, whether it was our TD side asking them and telling them about the importance of two-person crew or us telling them the importance of how you know, this uh, indoor air quality is so important, or the laborers or any other trade saying that this is why we're here to help. We can tell you, because we've been doing this and we've been doing it right for years, why we do what we do. You know, we're not haphazardly, and that's what made the middle class. We invest in ourselves, we invest in our communities, we invest in our country to make sure that uh, it's sustainable. You know, just going off of what you just said, Steve, that puts us right at the, we're right at the leading edge then, on the front lines of the response to this thing. Everybody listening to this, every sheet metal worker listening to this, and every TD member as well, right, has been on the front lines as well. So that one should be a point of pride for everybody. You know, one of the greatest things about David Michael, I did not, Dr. David Michael, I did not mention, is he actually helped create our asbestos screening program from the 1980s with uh, Art Moore and Local 28. And he has a very close working relationship for years with Randy Croca from Schmoet. So they know who we are. And there's a good chance that he will have some position in the administration going forward. He had come from the administration in the past. He was in the Obama administration, I believe. Uh, and, the, and the good news there is that uh, that's another sign that this Biden administration coming in has even had people on the agency review teams to assess what was going on in those agencies the last four years and how we can turn that around in the next four years to make it an agency that functions the way it's supposed to instead of having people in there that had no idea what they were doing there, they were just given a job. Right. It'll be a big difference after January 20th. I have one final question, and, and it may seem a little redundant because it goes into, you may have covered a little, bit of, a little bit of this earlier, but as you well know, election wins are one thing. But now comes the hard part, and that's actually passing legislation, which can help working families. Our organizing and mobilization efforts can't stop the day of the election. What does SMART intend to do in the coming months to ensure that our friends in elected office have the grassroots backing they need to pass the legislation they need to pass to help working people? Well, it comes back, it comes back to the Senate races that we won in Georgia. We were able to pass everything that we were working on in HR2. Two-person crew, yardmaster hours of service, bus driver assaults, a ton of stuff in that bill. We passed it out of the House, sent it over to the Senate. McConnell ignored it. Now we're going to have a Senate that's going to take up bills. So I'm very, I'm very confident that we're going to be successful in getting a lot of our provisions signed into law because of what happened in Georgia. And for me, on the sheet metal side, I, I can only tell you I'm elated to announce that we have um, posted a position as a government relations representative to help me. Uh, and that person's uh, responsibilities will be reading, writing, digesting, and helping develop legislation that will be addressing things like energy efficiency, retrofits, indoor air quality, uh, and, and other things that are going to come up to be important to us as we move forward. So um, I, I am elated that I am going to have help in doing that, uh, you know, one person can't do everything. So it's gonna be great. And uh, I think that this is our time. And as uh, somebody said to me, we're gonna finally have the opportunity to go on offense instead of trying to defend every single thing that we represent. We're gonna finally be able to do something and move our organization forward uh, and make sure that the membership that we have have jobs for years to come because we're given the tools that they're going to need to have that job. And that's a that's fantastic news. There's so many more possibilities. It's the, the fact that we've already got our our legislative priorities in HR2. We were able to broaden our scope. 
I mean, these were the things that were the most important issues to our members, and that's why they were the priority, and that's why they were in HR2. But now that they're in HR2, we've assembled with, with Larry Mann, our counsel, 35 more uh, pieces of legislation that we want to work on. So once we get these in the hopper, we've got 30, 35, I think it's 35 more pieces of legislation that we're looking at running. So um, we're going to take advantage of this situation because, you, you know, you, you don't know when you're going to get this chance again. Absolutely. Well, you don't know how long you have it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially today's day and age. You just never know. Though you never know. Maybe Lisa Murkowski could decide that she wants to become a Democrat or an independent. You never yeah. know. <laughs> right. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you. You guys did. Both of you did a fantastic amount of work this past election cycle. You had 12 months, so at least all close to 12 months, a very difficult time where we had to change the way we do things. And both of you were able to, to lead right through it and push through it. And today we're standing right here talking about how we're going to be shaping an agenda for working people and for smart members out there, making a big difference, which is a big change from where we were 12 months ago. You know, uh, I think a lot of people are going to find this episode very informative. I know I have, and a lot of other people will as well just so people kind of see behind the hood of how a lot of these changes are made and a lot of the work that we're doing to make things better for members in the years and months ahead. Uh, I want to thank both of you for being here. You know, both got busy schedules. You've been on a lot, on a lot of calls with the administration, helping shape an agenda for working people in the coming years and in the coming months. And uh, we appreciate you being here, taking the time, let people know what you're up to and what's going on and, and a lot of the progress that we've been making. We hope to have you on, on another episode very soon as well uh, to talk about this topic and a lot of other topics as well. I think a lot of people would be interested in hearing what you have to say. Well, thank you, Paul. You know, let, let's not forget what our, all, all of our members on the TD side are essential workers and what they've had to go through this last year with COVID and the sacrifices they've had to make and, and the extra uh, risk that they've put themselves and their family at just to be able to put food on the table and let, let's not forget about them. And um, thank you for the opportunity. I'm always ha happy to help whenever I can. And for me, uh, Paul, I, I got to tell you, I am uh, absolutely excited to death about where we are now, you know, and where we were, um, not only as an organization, but as, as a country you know, we have the opportunity before us now to uh, enjoy the fruits of our labor, we're going to say, and that labor was getting these people in the White House uh, that are going to actually be there to listen, uh, be a part of growing this country, and actually putting it back on the right track, whether it's handling COVID or addressing the economic downturn that we've been going through to no fault of our own because of COVID. Um, I, I would say that we are going to be in a much better place a year from now, it's going to take time, but I enjoyed being on this podcast uh, for the first time in a long time. We had a lot of positive things to say about where we think we're going to be, and um, I just thank you for having us. Absolutely. Thank you to, to both of you, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you, brothers. Thank you. You're listening to Talking Smart. Mobilize, organize, unionize. Do you have story ideas or have a question for the general president or union leadership? Call us toll-free at 844-984-0947 with your questions or ideas. Once again, 844-984-0947. This is the open mic segment where we sit down with General President Sellers. General President Sellers, I want to welcome you to the broadcast. Well, thank you, Paul, Michael, and Ben for bringing me into this podcast. I, I greatly appreciate the question uh, as well as the opportunity to share some thoughts with uh, our membership. General President Sellers, many members have asked and commented via social media messages and through email and text about the divisions our nation is currently experiencing. Many have also said they are appalled at what they witnessed last week with the attacks by extremists on our democratic process and on our nation's capital. This sentiment seems to all bear one common theme and one common question. What do you think we can all do as union members 
and those of us who are American citizens to hold accountable those who attacked and seek to undermine our democracy. While at the same time, how do we bring about a sense of unity back to our nation? We are a country that is polarized. Our families are polarized. And all of this, as we are in the worst period of this deadly pandemic, it is shocking how fast this division has happened. It begins with fake news. Don't believe them. And don't believe what you see. And then they cause division through racism. Our country's long-standing atrocity requiring equal justice under the law. And then we rename it as socialism. Then welcome in radical groups that emphasize the divide and make statements like good people on both sides. And then they engage in an unlawful insurrection against the people, against the government, and against the reality of what we are in right now. The planned attack with weapons and bombs on our capital, the intent of taking hostages, and the loss of five lives. Now, that has inspired more threats in D.C. and in all 50 states. This is led by one man's ego and his selfish burn-down-the-house attitude. The truth matters. Words matter. And when Donald Trump and his enablers say, be strong and fight like hell, we are coming for you. And trial by combat, those words matter. And they matter throughout his administration. And they mattered particularly last Wednesday. We need unity. Let our voice be heard. That our democracy will not be undermined. Not compromised by a wannabe dictator striving for complete power and forcibly suppress opposition. Let our voice be heard that our government, the system of our government, is for the people and by the people. By letting our voice be heard on accountability, responsibility, and mutual respect of each other. Respect for the law, that your voice matters, that my voice matters, and our views and our differences matter. We will overcome the current state of disunity, but we must bring down the temperature and the aggression. It will take listening and understanding of each other and mutual respect for each other. We are still in a deadly pandemic. Somehow wearing a mask has been politicized. Let the science and the experts guide us and please be safe. Thank you for the opportunity to share some thoughts on this very important matter during this very important transition of the leadership of the United States. Thank you, General President Sellers. We appreciate you being on today's broadcast. We know there's a lot going on in the world right now. There's a lot of change happening with this transition. Obviously, there's a lot of people on the other side who are trying to bog it down and doing some pretty difficult things. And we thank you uh, for what you had to say today. Thank you, guys.